You know, the more I think about it, the clearer it is to me that the path of a musician is actually not the same as the path of most people. My dad, who is himself a musician, likes to say that jazz musicians are just like everyone else, only more so. I mean, musicians go through the world same as everybody. They have families, they have a car, their car gets broken into. They have a heart, their heart gets broken. They have children. Their children experience joy, their children experience injustice. They feel lost, they have to pay the rent. All of it. But unlike most people, musicians can use all that stuff creatively. Their work can be a reflection of all that. They don't have to, they don't even get to push aside all that life stuff when it comes time to do the work. They filter it through their instruments, through the music, through their songs. Don't get me wrong, to be a great musician requires more than just living an interesting life. You have to practice, you have to work, you have to study, you have to speak the language, and you have to love it. I think you have to love it. I actually think that talent might really be love. Some people show up with a little extra predisposition to understanding the music, to playing it. Maybe it's a physical gift, dexterity, flexibility, whatever. Maybe it's perfect pitch. But really what I think it is, is a desire to be around it, to do it. And that desire, that love, is what we later on call talent. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. Keon Harold showed up with plenty of talent and plenty of love. He was born and raised in Ferguson, Missouri, to a musical family. He is the son of pastors and one of 16 children. As a boy, a trumpet was placed in his hands, and the rest is history. In college, he moved to New York to study at the New School. That was in the 90s. He became part of a legendary generation of musicians associated with the neo-soul movement, including Common, Bilal, Roy Hargrove, The Roots, and Robert Glasper. Harold is a reliable and sought-after player. Among big acts, he's worked with Jay-Z, Beyonce, Rihanna, Eminem, Maxwell, Mac Miller, and Snoop Dogg, to name a few. And at the same time, he's a seriously gifted jazz improviser and composer who was mentored by trumpeter Charles Tolliver and who was once referred to as the future of the trumpet by Wynton Marsalis. He supplied all of the trumpet playing in Don Cheadle's Miles Davis biopic, Miles Ahead, playing to match Cheadle's on-screen performance as Miles. The soundtrack to that film won a Grammy. But while Keon Harold has enjoyed, in many ways, what might appear to be a charmed career, he's also had a series of unexpected setbacks and heavy-lived experiences that contribute to his personal and musical journey. His new album, Foreverland, is a celebration of his multidimensional career and his sensitivity as an artist, proving that Harold is a master of channeling his life through his horn. The album features original songs that explore themes of empowerment, positivity, love, loss, and vulnerability. We talked recently about Foreverland, how a series of losses in his life ultimately led him to make what he called something beautiful, something positive, and something inspiring. And he reflects on the early days of his career as part of a community of like-minded musicians who were, as he says, always open. Third-story.com is the place to sign up, subscribe, and get involved. Check the archive. It's hundreds of deep-diving conversations like this one spanning over 10 years, including previous episodes with other trumpeters like Michael Lenhart, Philip Dizak, Tatum Greenblatt, Philip Lassiter, John Lampley, Adam O'Farrell, Benny Benack III, Stephen Bernstein, Ibrahim Malouf, Amir El-Safar, and more. And, well, that's a lot of trumpeters now that I see them all written together like that. Check out the archive or just simply subscribe to the podcast and get the whole back catalog. 
We are made in collaboration with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org slash studios to learn more about all their award-winning content and support this project on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast. Here's me and Keon Harold talking it down. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There it is. Perfect. I hear you great, too. <laughs> okay, so now, now that we got that out of the way, Keon Harold, man, it is such a pleasure to meet you. Man, mutual, mutual. And before we talk about anything else, I just want to tell you how much I've been enjoying your new record. And, you know, I'm one of the few people that has had a chance to listen to Foreverland in its entirety. And it is really special. It's a hard thing to do. I think that there are a lot of jazz crossover, soul, hip hop projects that defy genre and speak to that wonderful blend of influences that you have and that so many of us have, Mm -hmm. but that don't convincingly tell the story in all the genres, you know what I mean? I always feel like there's one, it's leaning too hard in one direction or the other direction. Or just trying too hard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree with you on that. And yeah, this doesn't feel like it's trying. It feels like it's doing. I mean, you know, it's who I am as a a person, as a musician, as an artist. It's not me trying to come up with a collaboration. These are genuinely people that I work with all the time. Um, These are my friends, you know, before people were famous, we were hanging out and, you know, being broke together. So it, it's a really honest culmination of the minds. I'd love to just talk about the whole story and how we got here. And even actually before we talk about who these people are and how long you've been working with them, especially people like Robert Glasper, who I know you met in high school. I just need to talk a little bit about how you grew up. I'm one of one. I have no siblings. I'm an only child. Wow. My family reunions are small. I am the total opposite of that. My family reunions are like a small (laughs) political rally. I'm one of 17 children, come from a a family where my parents were um, deep into the ministry, but also deep into music. Also really appreciated the arts, um, like kind of pillars of the community. My dad was the Boy Scout leader, as well as the pastor. My mom's an evangelist, as well as everybody's therapist, you know, um, and, you know, she was putting together, um, you know, giving out turkeys and making sure people had plenty of food to eat. And if they didn't have a place to stay, come to our place, even though it was small, it's still plenty of space and plenty of love for everybody to, you know, take part in. Um, My cousins, even though it was 17 of us, they were like my other siblings and so were my friends. So it was always um, an amazing (laughs) group of people always it was never empty you know I didn't have my own bed until I moved to college so it was an interesting way to grow up so you said you didn't have a bedroom or a bed of your own until you were (laughs) a little bit of both (laughs) my parents did did the best they could and we made it work one of 17 you were you all 17 at the house at one time never that because you know some of my siblings are older I'm in the middle but you know it was always a revolving door Kind of. So always interesting. Yeah, I imagine. And also we should say this is just outside of St. Louis. This is in Ferguson, Missouri, Mm -hmm. which is a a place that probably most people never heard of until they heard of it. Right. And the the, the situation with Mike Brown and all of the civil rights um, kind of situations that were that we that were unearthed there. (laughs) which is unfortunate. Was it a surprise to you when Ferguson and all of the issues in Ferguson blew up on the national stage? 
It was actually not a surprise because if you grow up in St. Louis, you kind of know the hidden truths about the city, about certain things. You know that if you're in a car and you, you if you get pulled over, probably everybody's going to go to jail. You might not get charged with anything, but you're going to go to jail for going, you know, 31 in a 30. Mm. It's kind of a crazy thing. And they, you know, found out many of these basically traps that were happening throughout the city after they 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 did a justice department review after all of the Mike Brown stuff happening, you know, and I didn't even really know it wasn't normal until I moved to New York city. Mm. So, and it was like, you know, if I'm walking down the street, I should just be okay. I'm walking down the street. And, and you know, sometimes in St. Louis, like you're going to get stopped. Why? Because of what you look like, which is unfortunate. <laughs> it was what it was. And I'm glad that a lot of that has changed now. Obviously, a lot of things remain the same, but at least that's changed. Or at least it's people are more aware of what's going on because they've been watched. I read that your grandfather actually was originally a police officer. He was. He wanted to help people um, in the community. Um, There's a a small community in St. Louis, much like Black Wall Street, it's called Kenlock. And most of my family grew up there. And it's right next to Ferguson. And, you know, it was like a black melting pot. And my grandfather was there. His father was a pastor. He was, you know, um, a police officer, but he was a great singer as well. So he wanted to help kids develop as people, as humans. So he, what, what better than music? So he started a drum and bugle corps, which allowed thousands and thousands of people over the years learn music. Many got a chance to go to college. Many got a chance to just learn discipline. Hmm. Um, and it was such an impactful thing versus him, you know, being a cop and, you know, maybe helping people or happen to arrest people, whatever that is, he was able to really, you know, pour into people's life, pour great music into people's life, pour discipline into um, people's life. And it was a beautiful thing. And it was such a life changing thing that unfortunately, when people didn't make practice, you would hear about something that happened to them. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know, maybe they get killed, maybe they go to jail or, or whatever. It's unfortunate or get pregnant or whatever, whatever, whatever the scenario you know, presented itself. But when they were there in the safe haven of learning music, you know, being around other kids, they were able to to really grow. His, my grandfather's name was Frank Harrell, Sergeant Frank Harrell. Hmm. We all had to learn how to play. So when I was five, six years old, a horn was placed in my hands. You know, I wanted to be a drummer. Hmm. Unfortunately, I started getting pretty good on the horn. And my brother, Emmanuel Harrell, who plays with Gregory Porter, he started off on the horn at the same time. Well, before me, he's a little older. He didn't progress so well on the, on the horn. So he ended up playing drums. So thank God for that. I see the hi-hat right over your shoulder. So you're still, you're oh, still yeah. drum adjacent. You're still living near the drums. I can hit the drums a little bit, but, you know, that's just one of those dreams of mine. <laughs> so the horn was placed in your hand. You know, I've heard you say a couple times already that music was a big part of your family, going back to your grandfather and in your parents' house also, mm-hmm. the ministry and also music. But what about being a professional musician. I mean, it sounds like everybody was encouraged to have music in their life as a source of discipline, as a source of community and expression. But it's another thing to say, actually, this is how I'm going to make money and this is how I'm going to make my living. I mean, what Mm -hmm. was that like for you and for the people around you when you realized that you didn't want to just do this part-time, you were going to dedicate yourself to this? Hey, it was, um, I would say I was pretty young, reasonably young, maybe like 13 or 14 years old, when I started going to sit-in places um, in St. Louis. Shout out to this incredible proprietor of, of the arts named Richard Henderson. 
disc jockey in St. Louis who saw me playing in high school and was like, yo, you got to come to this jam session. Hmm. He told me, okay, you got to assemble your band. You got to do this. You got to do that. Um, We're going to present you at this show. We're going to do this. So, you know, that really started me on that way. But when I was young, you know, I was playing in church. So I wasn't really making any money or anything like that. But when I started doing the other thing, it was like, okay, oh, you can make 50 bucks. You can make... (laughs) a hundred bucks here and there. So that kind of changed me, but you know, that's just the the temporary idea, but me listening to Clifford Brown and Miles Davis and really going deep and starting to transcribe and learn that, okay, this could actually be a career. Mm -hmm. And then the idea of them, you know, some of the the people, Howard Stone, who recently passed away, rest in peace. He was running the, the Vail Jazz Party. These guys were starting to introduce me to Wynton Marsalis um, and Russell Gunn, who's from St. Louis. All these guys, me seeing them was saying, OK, I got something here and I feel like I can be where they are. I feel like I want to go in the direction of what they're doing. So that in itself told me, OK, you know, at 14 that I'm moving to New York City no matter what get all these college auditions, all these college applications all over the country. But I had no doubt in my mind that I'm going to New York City to be with all the great musicians, to be with Roy Hargrove, to be with Greg Hutchinson and so many other amazing musicians that I was listening to at the time. I really didn't have any choice. So me at the age of 13 and 14, I knew that I wanted to be like that. So whatever that was, that's where I needed to be. And that's what I needed to be a part of. So I knew pretty early that it was either going to be me going into genetics um, as, you know, as a scientist or me doing music. It was one or the other. I wasn't going to play football because I got injured. I was good, but I got injured and I missed the all state tryouts. And it was like, okay, I don't think I'm going to be in the NFL. And tell me about the genetics thing. That's for real. You were interested in science and genetics. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm totally into science. I love the idea of it. I guess maybe at some point, maybe I'll really go deeper into it. I I was just always captivated by science and captivated by cell splitting and figuring out ways to get them to work together. To grow up as an aspiring jazz trumpet player in St. Louis, it would be impossible not to confront the legacy of Miles Davis early on. Anybody who puts the trumpet in their mouth is going to deal with Miles Davis, but I imagine that for you, it loomed particularly large because he came from so close to where you came from. Absolutely. More than that, the idea of Miles Davis as the legend is such a big deal as a trumpet player, as a Midwest trumpet player. Anybody coming up that Mississippi River, it's like, you got to know Miles Davis. The thing was... Obviously, I didn't know who Miles Davis was, but I knew who Miles Davis was. I didn't really, you know, go deep, deep, deep into Miles until I was a little older, maybe 18 or 19. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I knew about him, but I didn't really recognize his impact as an artist. For a few years later, because I was into Clifford Brown, Lee Morgan, um, Maynard Ferguson was the first person I transcribed, and Cat Anderson, people like that. And it was like, wow, you know, I just wanted to learn how to play the trumpet. But then, you know, when I heard Clifford Brown on the radio, I started, you know, I would, you know, make my tapes, go buy my Maxell tapes, you know, sit by the radio and just record the solos, not even the heads, just the solos, hmm. just so I can learn that vocabulary. And nobody ever even told me that that was that's what I was supposed to do as, as transcribing. I just did it. I just felt like, you know, I need to learn this vocabulary. But Going back to Miles Davis, it's deeper than just him as an artist. 
he played in my distant cousin's band, Eddie Randall and the Blue Devils. That was Miles Davis's first band. So my grandfather would tell me about this, hmm. this Miles Davis. And he would also tell me about Winston Marcellus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to learn how to play like that again. I'm 13 and 14. And he's he's telling me that, you know, you got to find You got to look after these great musicians, you know, because you could do it too. Ultimately, Miles Davis, Clark Terry, mm-hmm. um, just the legacy of, of St. Louis trumpet players is deep. I mean, there's so many areas that we can talk about where your trajectory and Miles's have overlapped and aligned, and we will. But one thing is that, you know, Miles throughout his career was moving, constantly moving forward and constantly opening up. Miles ahead, for sure. You know, you're talking about Clark Terry and Maynard Ferguson, and, you know, you were obviously lit up by the bebop language originally and by the jazz vocabulary. Were you also a hip hop head? Were you listening to other music as well? Because later on, you became somebody who found a way to bridge the divide between all of this stuff. Was that part of your vocabulary when you were coming up? Absolutely. I mean, I was a jazz purist, you know, when I was learning the art. But, you know, the idea of hip hop was basically surging the idea of, you know, what we know of as hip hop. So it was at the dances is everywhere. My sisters were listening to a hip hop R&B. My mom and dad, they were listening to gospel. My grandfather was listening to the oldies, you know, and, and Tito Puente and everything else. So everything was important. And I'm, I'm still that way now. I only believe that there's good music. You know, you got good and bad. It's two kinds. And it's what you're feeling at a specific time. I was definitely always into hip hop. You know, when I was transcribing and, and checking out, you know, Kenny Garrett, I was also listening to Buster Rhymes at, at his rhythm and, and how he went across the bar lines and everything like and trying to basically sync my lines up to his lyrics trying to bring harmonics to to what he was saying with his words um, and his rhythms. I'm I'm into dopeness, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? And 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 not just hip hoppers have it, not just jazz musicians have it, not just yeah. gospel musicians have it. You got the Japanese, you got everybody yeah. who has their, you know, their set of soul. I'm I'm into whatever's going to the next level, whatever's giving us perspective and feeding us honesty. I'm only about that. I'm about that. Yeah. And for me, my music is, you know, the culmination of all those things. What I believe in, what I know to be true, or else you won't hear it from me. Yeah. You you won't hear me say it. You won't hear me play it. Yeah. You know, if if I don't believe it, if I don't feel it, if it's not my story, if it's not a if I'm not a part of the story. You know, you won't get me plagiarizing fakeness. <laughs> plagiarizing fakeness. I love it. You know, <laughs> when I read that you came from a big family, this may be a stretch. I mean, you might say, yeah, I know you're, stre- you're reaching too hard here. But I was thinking about how part of the job of the improvising musician, of the musician who's in the world that we're in today that we're talking about, part of that job is to speak the language, become part of the community, contribute to something greater be part of the whole, and also find your individual voice. And I imagine that growing up in a house that is just filled with so many people forces you to figure out what you have to offer that is unique in a larger context, that that just was par for the course for you coming up. 
Oh, Leo, absolutely. I think that is a, you know, one of the one of the gifts that I have to figure out what's what's my perspective? What do I what is my point? What is what what is my what do I have to say about what's going on? It's so easy to fade into the back. It's so easy to do what everybody else is doing. But what's my perspective? If not, I'll just fade to the back. I want to have my own perspective. I want to say something. And being in a family that big, you can disappear quickly. Again, I go home to the family reunions. You know, I've out of everything that I've done, I can go and literally fade to the back and just be there and be chilling, not dressed up and just be one of everybody else. Because my brothers are pretty funny. They're pretty talented. They're amazing people. I'm just one of them. But at the same time, there's something special that I have to say. Mm-hmm. So I I use that in my musical families as well. You know, I can be there, you know, but at the same time, I don't just want to play the parts. I want to make the parts. I want somebody to be inspired by what it is that I have to say. So, you know, that takes me a lot of time sometimes to to really think and and have a really specific idea that I'm trying to get across and convey. Yeah. I like to take that time to do that. And being in a family like, you know, that size, 17 people, you better have something to say. <laughs> yeah. For real. Because everybody you either going to be spoken over, yeah. you know, or you get ran over yeah. or you know, you either going to have something profound. You know, I apply that to my music. I apply that to my life. I apply that to to everything. So you mentioned Vale. You know, I don't know much about this scene, but I have heard about this. So there was a series of parties or events that were thrown to support and introduce young jazz musicians. Is that what it was? In Vail, Colorado, we had this thing called the Vail Jazz Party, which had, you know, with the Vail Jazz Party, which is like a festival, you know, weekend festival, they would have kids, they would host kids for like two weeks. And you study with, you know, Terrell Stafford, you study with um, the Clayton brothers, um, Lewis Nash, um, John Riley. Who else is in there? Um, Herlin Riley. A lot of people, just amazing people. Um, Monty Alexander. Everybody would just be there. And you you had the opportunity to, to really just focus with some of the best, you know, young talent in America. At the time, there was no internet. There was no YouTube. There was no idea of, you know what, I'm texting. I just heard this this person at the session. Or look, look at this video of this person. It wasn't that. It was literally word of mouth. Maybe a club owner may have heard you. Maybe, you know, a teacher, an educator had heard you. But but it's all recommendation. And you get sent to, to Vail, Colorado. Many of us, it was our first time flying. It was my first time flying. I think it might have been Robert's. You go out and you find Robert Glasper and Terrace Martin the first time you went out? Listen, the first time, you know, I traveled to somewhere else, the kind of guys they were able to find. And I met when I was in high school, I was 15, maybe Terrace was 16, maybe Robert 17. Robert Glasper, Terrace Martin and myself were in the same band. We met as kids playing the blues. There is something to that. And it was it was it was a beautiful time. Obviously, we're still brothers. We're still creating on a high level right now. You know, the three of you are responsible for, I think, helping to create this hybrid language that we started talking about that brings in all of the influence and is now influencing a lot of other people. Were you all speaking a similar language when you met, or did you sort of put that together after meeting. I mean, did you find when you met those guys, oh, we have, even though we're from different corners that you're from the Midwest, Robert's from Texas, Tara's from California, you guys Mm -hmm. came from different areas. 
Very different. I was country as hell. <laughs> Rob will tell you I have some some big shorts. <laughs> Rob was from, from Houston, super skinny, you know, string bing of a guy. And Terrence coming from the West Coast, super, super cool, super player, super fly. He had started working with Snoop Dogg. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> Robert was, you know, he had tapes. At the time, we all had tapes and we all had our CDs. We were listening to Kenny Garrett's songbook. And we were also listening to, and I had never heard of this, Chopped and Screw music. So this would have been like 90, you know, 95, yeah. 96. Just new ideas of, okay, this is where I'm from and this is what we're listening to. This is where I'm from. This is what I'm doing. This is where I'm from. This is what I'm in. At the time, I was like, you know, hardcore bebop. And they were like, what the hell? What are you listening to? What's going on? You know, I've heard people play, but what you're doing is is, is what I want to be doing. You know, so we were definitely a meeting of the minds. So you came in and you were like, no, you got to talk about Clifford Brown. I mean, we can talk about all that other stuff, too, but this yeah. is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Clifford, Clifford Brown. Clifford and Freddie yeah. and, and Woody and, you know, all that stuff. And again, we were all playing, like playing for real. Very, very serious, even though we were listening to all the stuff that's happening in the world. But we were always open. I think that's the, you know, that's that's one of the outlying qualities that we were always open to what music can be, not what it was, not what it is, but what it can be and what we can add to it. You had made up your mind even before that, that you were going to go to New York. And that's exactly what you did. You moved to New York and you went to the new school and Glasper also ended up in New York at the new school. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole generation of you that ended up there. What was that transition like for you when you came out here? Oh, man, <laughs> I was thrown in the frying plan, for lack of better words. Um, <laughs> it was it was amazing to see, you know, the melting pot of people, a melting pot of music, um, a melting pot of opportunities and a melting pot of just incredible, incredible talent, all kinds. Um, you know, at the time, you know, just the setting of when I moved there, you know, you had the roots with the black and the black lilies you had erica badu you know you know killing it at the time you had d'angelo working on voodoo you had erica working on mama's gun you know at the new school it was on 13th street um electric lady was right on 8th street so you know the opportunity to just walk down the street and be around those people and you know walk into the studio and see those sessions and meet those people was you know we didn't know what was really happening when you look back it, it is history it is you know neo soul at its greatest point um but we were just college students walking down the street you know saying oh my god common's there recording common wants to learn how to play you know piano so robert's teaching common how to play piano Bilal Oliver, one of the most incredible vocalists of our time, is best friends with Rob. Bilal is working with Common on his album. He's working with Erica and, and D'Angelo and all of these people and all these things are, are happening. And for me, you know, Roy Hargrove was also in the mix. So Roy Hargrove was working on Common's Like Water for Chocolate and, you know, came down to the idea that, OK, you know, all these elements happening. They needed a trumpet player because Roy couldn't go on tour with Common, you know, he was on tour with D'Angelo, he was on tour doing his own thing, you know, they needed an, a trumpet player. So my only audition in life was auditioning 
for common. It opened me up further, you know, um, into music. And I got the gig and, you know, <laughs> from since then, since 99 until now, you know, that's one of the most incredible people ever um, that gave me an opportunity at the very, very beginning. Well, and Common opens this record. I mean, that relationship continues to this day. The new album opens with a track that features, among others, Common. So this is a relationship that's ongoing. My, 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 my piece. Search for it like the side streets. When I find it, I won't buy it. Spread it to my eye keys. The key eye is to see blocks and then move them. In a pharaoh's hands, there's organized confusion, illusion, delusion, or is that abused in at another man's fall? Try not to find amusement. I park in a lot of peace. Got it in me, but I'm not a beast. Recorded hurt and anger. It's mixed, but it's not released. Tell me about Roy. He did some of that work also of crossing over, and he was dealing with the trumpet on the highest level. And he also was not afraid to speak the language of the new school. And he also invented a kind of a way of, you know, the stuff that he played on D'Angelo's record. We're all still kind of trying to get close to that. Yeah, the, the overdubbing, the idea of using bebop language on popular records. Roy didn't really shy from that. He always went hard, 100%. Um, again, one of my biggest supporters, one of my biggest, you know, ideas of what I thought was cool, it was Roy Hargrove. From when I first learned about his music from a friend of mine, Eric Gilkey, mm-hmm. back in the day when we go to the library and check out, you know, music in the seventh grade, he brought Tenors of Our Time, you know, to to class and he let me borrow it. And I was, it was just like, man, you got this young guy looking fly, you know, he got his trumpet, you know, you put the music on and there was nothing young about what he was playing. There was nothing compromised about his vocabulary, nothing compromised about the the chances that he was taking. So I was immediately inspired by that. So Roy Hargrove, he gave me an opportunity. I mean, the the, the idea of working with Common, but you know, he he would put on these um, trumpet things called and the trumpet shell sound, and he would get me together. It'd be me and Roy, mm. and it'd be Roy and Ambrose Akimisure, mm. or Ambrose and Sean Jones, or all of us had the opportunity to you know for Roy to just you know be our big brother on stage, and, and not just. You know, okay, I just want to I want to feature you guys. It would, it would be like you play your own music and Roy would play that too, which was the epitome of not of no ego, but the epitome of building a community of the next. Yeah. Building a community of the next is what Roy was all the way into the day that he passed. Yeah. He was, you know, always giving up the the biggest giver of music, teaching songs, teaching etiquette, teaching, you know, the way you're supposed to play this music, the attitude, the rawness that you're supposed to have as a musician. Shout out to Roy. You know, I owe a lot to him, honestly. I talked to Greg Hutchinson recently and he was going on and on. And I don't think it's a small thing about the way he would dress and the way the whole band would look and he said you know the way people look today roy did that you know absolutely suit and sneakers on or whatever it was just like to put to bring a little bit of the new culture the honesty you know it's the honesty and and the um the the courage to be honest the courage to be who you are 
times change all the time. A lot of time you get caught, oh my God, you must be like this person. You must do that. No, you must do you and you must be able to go to sleep at night while doing you. You know, a lot of times, you know, it doesn't happen that way. And you end up, you know, trying to recreate the will. The will is going to be what it is. It's what can you add to it? Yeah. What can you say that makes the will special? As simple as that, man. And Roy was definitely yeah. that guy. Shout out to Nick Payton too. But, yeah. you know, Roy, come on, man. I hadn't actually checked out your very first record until I started to think about talking to you, the Introducing Keon Herald record. I can hear where at that point you presented a more sort of traditional record in a lot of ways, really playing. But that to me was like, okay, that's a statement of where you started when you first came out to assert yourself as an artist. Interesting enough, that record, Introducing Keon Harold, I recorded it <laughs> like two days after I got off the road with Jay-Z, you know? So that was music that had been written while I was in college, yeah. like early, early. So it was just, let me just record this stuff. So I did it. It was an opportunity to, you know, to be documented. And I was able to do that with some incredible people. Shout out to my mentor, Charles Tolliver. Um, you know, Marcus Strickland was on there, EJ Strickland, um, Jeremy Most. Yeah. Um, was an incredible guitar player, but most people would probably know him with working with Emily King, just, you know, one of my best friends, just an incredible musician. But, you know, we were in college together. Again, all these people that I work with are not session musicians. These are people who I know, who I love. It's no accident. We've seen each each other's progression and growth over the years yeah it then takes you eight years i guess to make another record oh my god i also did not know this story i'm sure you've t had to talk about this before and it, maybe you have ptsd having to deal with it but i'll just briefly say you went through plenty of life cycle stuff in that period of time and you had started to write about it and put music together not only started to you had made an album's worth of material that got you through this time of your life mm -hmm. and that record essentially was stolen out of your car is that true yes yes i've been working on a lot of music because you know i have a, a interesting track i'll have to go back to come forward please I, I started off working with common and i was playing with common for years but again sometimes what you don't expect will take you even further you know i was working on touring on the like water for chocolate mm. era so that was a couple of years then common put out another record that didn't have trumpet on it so at the time it was just like okay so what do you do well it's like come on man it's expensive to have anybody on the tour with you we don't have trumpet on this record so you know unfortunately we can't take you but at that time it, it hit me in a way that it's like okay i'm not gonna go on the tour so i'm gonna get into music production mm. so i started producing music um, so I did learning the art and, you know, I ended up, you know, producing a lot of music for 50 Cent. I was an in-house producer for G-Unit, doing stuff for LL, wrote the theme song, Queen Latifah show. 
was producing for Mob Deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of different things from like 2002 to like 2007 or eight. I was trying to learn that. I was still playing, still hitting, no no problem, but I was really trying to really go deeper into the music. That being said, the idea of production, mm-hmm. I feel it's very important to my style of music. Mm-hmm. It's not just ting, ting, to ting, even though I love that. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's not just four people playing. It, it might be stacked vocals. It might be stacked horns. So I had to really learn the process on how to do that and make it be honest, to make it be intentional and it not be cliche. So I had to actually learn how to do my song structure, you know, because it's like, yeah, I can do AABA, but that's not the way I write. It took time. It took a long time or else I would have been putting out albums every year, you know, but I wanted to, again, be honest and make a statement and say something that was uniquely the way I do. Do I sit home and, you know, write tunes and do I have a bunch of tunes that have never been played? Absolutely. But they don't speak to me in the way that this music that took a little time does. You know, it's not the stories. It's not the visceriality of who I am. But I've, I've finally gotten to a place to where I know how to do that. I know how to do my sound. And that takes a while, unfortunately. You know, I didn't, like, stop playing. Yeah. It was like, you know, I'm producing, but I'm also recording. Yeah. I'm also arranging. I'm also still touring. Yeah. It was just that I wasn't recording the music that I heard in my head. Yeah. I was recording with everybody else. Yes. Crazy list of, you know, of people I have the honor to work with. But again, I like to have something to say. I'm from the show me state. I'm from Missouri. Um, you know, that's, that, that's, that's what we say. It, it has to be something that's real. That's, you know, uniquely yours. Going back to the, to the record that was stolen. I had recorded all this music and I was li- really ready to put it out. But, you know, I ended up parked on Fifth Avenue and somebody got into my car and stole all of the files. At the time, it wasn't the way that it is now where you can have a cloud and you can have everything backed up. You know, fortunately, I had two songs in two different studios that kept the files, which is a song called Stay This Way. I actually tell this story when I when I do this song. It started off as a lullaby when I was in college and I forgot about it. It came back to me years later. And I was able to to have that be kind of the basis of my album, The, the Musician. But again, my stuff was stolen. I was just kind of like heartbroken for a long time. And, you know, the universe says you could either be creative or you can be depressed. So when it, what what is it? Let it go and latch on to what's to come or sit in the shit. And yeah. I was like, no, yeah. we're, we're, we're moving forward. Yeah. And I think it's the best thing that could have ever happened to me. When did working with Don Cheadle on Miles Ahead enter into that process? Because in the end, this major thing happens for you where you became part of the team, the musical team that did the music for the biopic Miles Ahead. And one of the things you did is Cheadle plays Miles and he pretends to play trumpet and you played the trumpet. So Mm -hmm. not only did you have to kind of channel Miles, but you also had to do it in a technically very challenging way where you and Cheadle had to 
I don't know how you did it, synchronize a line. You either had to show him how to do it or you had to figure out how to sound like Miles and make it look like what he's playing. <laughs> Everything that you said. <laughs> I mean, there was there's so many um you know, little nuances to to how we were able to make that happen. Again, Robert Glasper was the composer on that. Um, Don Cheadle, you know, was the producer, but they brought me in as the as the trumpet voice for Miles Miles Davis in the Miles Ahead movie, which meant that anything that you heard in the movie, other than the master recordings, was actually me playing. So anytime you would see Don Cheadle's fingers moving, that would actually be me playing. Which is interesting because on another movie that was done, the music was recorded first and the actor was able to learn the fingering. And and that was fine. But this was different. Yeah. This was the opposite. Don, you know, was recorded, you know, on a video and he was basically, you know, his fingers were doing what they were doing, flailing. However, it was I had to make that make sense. So it would take, you know, many overdubs to take the jazz. <laughs> I guess what is the jazz vocabulary make it make sense with his fingerings that didn't make any sense at all. So I had to make those lines make sense hmm. because we actually had to record it, which was, you know, kind of a, a mind trip when you think about it. So it was overdubbing. So I would have maybe, for instance, I mean, I don't know if, we're, if people will be listening to this or seeing this. Basically, the fingers would be moving. I would make a line. Whatever iteration it was, I would probably do eight lines that might be correct. You know, I'll have to look at his face to see what his face is doing. I'll have to listen to the to the actual chords. I mean, the trumpet only has three valves. So you kind of can't mess up. If his if his hand is open, it's a C or a G. It, it can only be one of those things, unless it's really high and the overtones are are happening. So you're thinking, okay, for the trumpet players who are watching this or anybody who knows, I want them to know that we got as close as we could to absolutely right. Like, I want this to be right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because most people, there's so many examples of movies where people play guitar and it's not the thing or the trumpet or the saxophone. It's not, you can just, anybody who's ever dealt with the instrument knows this is not right. Exactly. But you so you were very focused on it. I was very focused on it. It's Miles Davis. It got to be right. So, you know, I really took the time and was diligent in my time as a producer. I learned how to do overdubs. I learned I, I could record myself. You know, because something like that would would probably be like sticking somebody in the eye to do that with an engineer because it took hours. It took time. Yeah. It took a lot of focus for me to to go through and basically make these. Um, again, it was, it's like science. It can either be this. It could be that. It could be that. I, I really enjoyed doing that. That was a process. You and Don Cheadle obviously developed a, a nice relationship because as I understand it, he was the one that gave you the title Mugician. Yeah. After the record was stolen. The record was gone, you know, before. When I, I was working on the music for Miles Ahead, probably before all of this. Yeah. And I ended up writing a song called The Mugician after it. What happened was myself, Robert Glasper, Don Cheadle, Vince Wilburn, Aaron Davis, we were all at South by Southwest talking about how we worked on the soundtrack, how the, how the music came together. Don was like, what you did 
for this thing was it was a magical thing that you did i don't even i still can't even understand how you did it so you're you're a magician you do know that right since you're a musician and a magician you're the musician and when he came out you know and we were speaking on this panel at south by southwest he introduced me as keon harold the musician so to me that kind of stuck and when I, when i got home i started writing the music to it and ultimately that became the name of your second record the musician yeah Something incredible about that record for me is the way it opens with this very powerful phone message that your mother left for you. I mean, part of what's so striking about it is it just does not stop. I mean, she really she says this thing she's inspiring and she's encouraging to you and she wants to give you hope to carry on and to let you know that you're important and you have a gift and you have a responsibility but she doesn't just say it a little bit she says it a lot so much so that at some point you said okay i'm just gonna have to orchestrate this i'm gonna have to (laughs) turn this into a cinematic piece of music I mean, that voicemail, my mom, she's an amazing being. She passed away. She sent these voicemails all the time to all of my siblings, all of the kids. We talked about all the all the kids. Everybody had their own individual relationship with her. So, you know, for me, I have my voicemails. My brothers have theirs. My sisters have theirs. But this was such a perfect one. But she, I have more. I could I could probably do a whole album with just what she left me and her words are gold her words are valuable and to so many and it's been crazy to see how many people who've actually been impacted by that who've lost parents or not just parents friends or whatever and they just need some motivation to go forward and my mom's words she's again she's you know a minister uh i would say a therapist of, of some way because she was able to help so many people and talk to people, talk people off the ledge and give them hope. Anyway, she did that to me all the time. I wish I could talk to her now sometimes about some of the things that I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this voicemail was such a perfect thing that I would listen to it and I just had to put music to it. I had to. My mom was in the hospital at the time. Um, I was on my way to Africa, but got called and, and they told me mom's in the hospital. So from that, I was like, okay, dang, we didn't think she was going to make it. She did pull through and she lived a couple more years after that. But it was such a perfect length, the perfect content that I put it in Pro Tools and just started writing. Like, oh my God. And this, then I got my man Darren Atwater, who's one of the most incredible arrangers, musicians, musical minds ever. And shout out to him for being the new director of um, Monterey now. Um, shout out to Darren Atwater, who was able to, you know, bring in the string element to this song. It was just something that had to be done. I'm an artist who likes to write about stuff, like for real. So I do do things just for fun, but usually. I want to tell a story. I want something to say. I want people to be impacted because that's what we actually leave. And I wanted to, you know, have purpose and, and have value to somebody's soul and somebody's heart. So my mom did that for me. And I just wanted to basically give her something to listen to 
So as she was in the hospital, I got a chance to play this for her. And, you know, at the time she was actually in a coma. I know I'm going deep, but I had the opportunity to, to, to do that. And she came back and then she was actually able to tell me, I love that, son. That was amazing. Mm. I like what you did, which is cool. That's really wonderful, man. Once again, in between projects, there was another crazy thing that happened in your life. Oh, my God. If having the album stolen out of the back of your car reoriented one thing, here comes another one, man. In the mid-pandemic, when we're all locked down and nobody's going anywhere, you did come to New York with your son and you stayed in a hotel in Soho. If you want to tell me the story as you remember it, feel free to tell me as much of it as you care to. It was Christmas time and I was hanging with my son. My son came down um, and I was staying in a hotel because I was getting ready to move to Los Angeles at the time. Um, I didn't move for a couple years after that. Well, I would say a year after that because I had to stay and deal with the residue of what happened. My son and I were in a hotel, come downstairs, and my son was wrongfully accused of stealing someone's iPhone in a Soho hotel. And not only was he accused and profiled, but he was also attacked. But I captured it on a phone because it was so unbelievable what was happening at the time. I took out my phone because you just never really know um, what's going on at times. You know, at the time we were dealing with the death of George Floyd. We've seen that on television. Ahmaud Arbery. Um, we've seen that. And, you know, just to see these things, it was such a time of microaggressions, um, micro things that you just are hyper aware of what could possibly happen hoping for the best that nothing will happen. But at this time, it literally was like one out of a million times that this person wigs out. And it's the epitome of what you don't want to happen to your child. Yeah. Um, you know, at the time he was very, very young and having my son attack in front of me next to me was just kind of like, wow. And it went viral. And it was a thing that we had the opportunity to speak on because unfortunately, when it comes to black people, sometimes the black person can't talk because they're either killed by law enforcement or you end up in jail or something like that. We had the opportunity to basically speak. And many people had the opportunity to share their stories as well all over the world, not just in New York, not just in the States, but all over the world. People were telling me how they had been you know, profiled and, and asking, you know, how could they deal with it? How can they move forward? How should people act? And not just the people who are profiled, but other people who didn't realize that they were actually doing this to people, which is unfortunate. Huh. But, you know, I feel like some growth and something has yeah. come out of it that's here to bring about change. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, when I think about it, you had an opportunity to turn something negative into something constructive in part because you had a platform and you had friends that could also share it and so it would reach more people to talk about it. Hmm. One of the key moments in that experience was not only the woman who accused your son because she seemed like she was essentially a very unhinged person, mm -hmm. but it was the hotel management and this is maybe speaks to what you're talking about. I don't necessarily know or the hotel worker, you know, who when a lady bursts in and says that kid stole my phone, gives the woman the benefit of the doubt, gives this other person the benefit of the doubt. And probably in the moment. Oh, absolutely. Wasn't able to stop and say, 
this is a form of profiling that I am engaging in right now, and I am accepting the terms of this. And those are the opportunities, I think, for us to all mm -hmm. examine ourselves and say, what would I do in that situation? Wow. I hadn't thought about that until right now, but I think that that's a big part of it. Because you just said, you know, people may be engaging in microaggressions, they don't know it. And so it was an opportunity to say, okay, let's all look at ourselves and, and say, where do I fit in this story? Absolutely. That is like the perfect breakdown of it. How did that experience affect you moving forward, I guess, is the question. I mean, in, in a very serious way. Obviously, my platform changed. My approach to just everyday life changed. I became a, a, a specific kind of voice. I mean, I've always spoken out. I've always been a person who's about, you know, action and activism and speaking for the people who can't speak for themselves um, as much as I possibly can within reason, obviously. I've always been that. This was just <laughs> kind of like the perfect storm of me being the musician, me being the activist, me being the person who actually became the victim, which was you know, unbelievable. I'll just say this. The reason why I, I wrote this song, Find Your Peace, had to do with this. Finding a place of being still when the world is tumultuous. Finding a place where I'm okay in spite of everything that happens to me and around me and to other people as well. That I can find that place of safety, that I can find that place of, of calm and find that place of being resolute in spite of, you know, the storms that proverbially take over our lives every day. So that was one of the answers to what had happened. You know, and that's obviously the thing that happened with my son um, is not the only thing that's happening. So many things that go on, you know, we just can't control. So what do we do? What do we do? Do we stand or do we fold? But I look at it like us being a boat in the middle of a storm, troubled waters. Like, how do you, you know, maintain, yeah. you know, who's the pilot? Mm -hmm. You know, who, who's taking over? You know, are you going to jump overboard or are you going to stay there and fight it, fight it through? So, you know, that's what I'm saying. We got to have, have courage to stand in spite of the punches that are getting thrown our way. I'm so glad to hear you say that Find Your Peace was a response to that and maybe more of the record as well, because I wasn't sure what to expect with this record and just because I don't know you and wondering what is your emotional headspace going into this? And is this going to be an angry record? Is this going to be an aggressive uh -huh. record? Is this going to be a this? Is it going to be a p overtly political? And I found it to be a very beautiful record. You pursued beauty in the record. You know, I mean, beauty can come in many ways, but but that there's something very easy to hear in this music and enjoyable. You know, I'm not uncomfortable listening to it. And I could imagine <laughs> you making a record that would say, I've been uncomfortable and I want to express that in this music. And instead you made something that's very lush. You know, there's like a real vista about the sound of the music and there's something just very beautiful about it. And the song with Laura Mvula is also very beautiful. Okay, I'll wait for you. 
I could be obvious, you know, Dr. Obvious and write some, you know, write something about how I'm frustrated with the world, how I'm frustrated with how I'm treated, how I'm frustrated, how people are treated. But I can also try to give reasons for people to actually continue to exist because there's beauty everywhere we look. There's beauty in all of the, all of the ugly things that are out there. There's beauty in all of the, the, the trouble that we see. There's beauty in spite of what's going on. What God has given us, you know, is, is a platform for us to create and leave something else. You know, I can take something and it's how I shape it. That's that's the difference. You know, you can you can say something to me it's how I take it. You know, something can be done to me, but it's how I respond. You know, so this is a response to the ugliness, you know, proverbially. This this is a response to racism. This is a response to losing a loved one. This is a response to all of that in the most beautiful kind of way. Finding my peace in everything that's going on. Again, like I said, it's not just one thing. You know, we were in a pandemic. I would I would say the name of the original album that was going to come out, it was called Melancholy Aura. That's where I was in my headspace. Melancholy Aura is it's an incredible song. At some point, people will hear it, but it didn't even make this record. But that's what it was supposed to be. I had to reflect and say, you know what? What do I really want to put out in the universe? You know, I want to put out something beautiful, something positive, something inspiring. You know, I could easily put out Melancholy Aura, which is where I was. Mm -hmm. I was depressed. I was, you know, I had lost a girlfriend. Like, mm -hmm. I've been going through a bunch of different things because that's how this album started. Mm -hmm. I was dealing with the stuff with my son. I was dealing with moving. I was dealing with the loss of my mom. Still thinking about the loss of the incredible Roy Hargrove. There were so many different things at the time we couldn't go outside you know i was at the marches you know playing national playing the anthem playing the black national anthem you know trying to you know learn as much as i can about what was going on in our world then we had covid there was so many different things that was just kind of like you know what i could do a covid album yeah but i could just also wait <laughs> and just do something that i really want to do and that took more courage because again i have the music that reflected that time. I have the the obvious words. I have the obvious songs. You know, I have all of those things, but that wasn't enough for me. I wanted to say something that was real, that will last a little bit longer than what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. You also appeared at the White House with Common in 2016. That was at still at the tail end of a time that I think represented progress and momentum and forward motion in our country. It must have been incredible to be at the White House. Oh, man. Amazing, especially with the group of guys, Derek Hodge and Bilal, Elena Penderhughes, Glasper, Common. Actually, that was the only tiny desk that was recorded at the White House. So, you know, that was a very, very special time, man. Very special. And that was one of many losses that we were feeling a few years later, like looking at our government and looking just everything. It was like, of course, I could melancholy aura, man. I can see why you would want to make that. And instead, you make a record that talks about finding your peace. And the second track with PJ Morton is called Beautiful Day. And again, it's, yeah. that's a very optimistic message, you know? And, the, and even that, the idea of that song, you know, a beautiful day, it's a beautiful day perspective-wise because I say, you know, outside, it could, it could be storms out there. People can be coming at me with guns. But it's a beautiful day because of my perspective on what I choose 
to you know how I choose to see the world. Look at the sun shining. Why don't you just let the sun light in? I know you've been hurting, so just let the sun light in. Dealing with the things that you can't control yeah. outside, you know, it's it's our job to to give a perspective, to give the reason, to give the definition of what it is. I can't be victim to a bad day. I can't be victim to what everybody else is throwing at me. I have to be the, I don't know, I have to be courageous, mm -hmm. you know, honestly. It's a beautiful day because I say, again, the idea for, for Everland is that everything's possible. There's beauty to be searched inside of ourself. Um, it could be with somebody else, but it can be deep inside of you. We, we, we got to, you know, dig a little deeper because it's so easy to accept the obvious negativity that comes at us every day. Mm -hmm. You described the way you came up, cassettes, word of mouth, no internet. You know, there was no, you could see everything. Everybody could see everything. There were no people showing you how to play this lick. There was no rig rundowns of how people's gear looked. In the, you know, you had to figure it out. You belong to a generation of people who were kind of listening to similar stuff and figured it out together and, and created something. I guess I, now that you're not in New York, you know, and you get some perspective from what that scene looks like, like, what do you make of the state of this generation of jazz, the ones that did come up under slightly different conditions? You know what? I think it's healthy. It's different, but it's healthy. Accessibility was, you know, when we look back, we realized that, oh my God, I didn't have that. Hmm. I didn't have that. Yeah. I didn't have that, but I still made it work. You know, the generation of today, they also have their way of, oh my God, we didn't have that. We didn't have that, but we do have this. A lot of times I was able to to basically engage with some of the legends. Yeah. They were physically here yeah. on earth. Had the opportunity to play with them, got an opportunity to talk to them. Somebody like Ndugu Chancellor, somebody like it's my man who did the record, um, Passing Ships, Pianos. Hold on, let me figure it out. Andrew Hill. Andrew Hill. You know, I had the opportunity to play that record with him, you know, when I was younger. And that came directly from somebody like Charles Tolliver. Yeah. Now it's different. Most of those legends are gone. Like, I wish I had the opportunity to play with Art Blakey. Yeah. I wish I had the opportunity to, you know, work with certain people. But I got a chance to play with Billy Harper, had the opportunity to play with James Spaulding, had the opportunity to sit next to, you know, Wayne Shorter and record on the Miles Ahead record and play with Herbie Hancock. You know, those opportunities are not that often anymore. So we had that accessibility. Now, going forward, they don't have as many of those people anymore. There's a few, and it's kind of like, you know, it's almost like chasing the ghost, but they're creating their own way, creating their own, um, you know, snowball effect on what music should be. You know, shout out to many of the, the young cast, Gifton Jalen, amazing trumpet player, um, Emmanuel Wilkins, killing it. My man, um, the vibraphones uh joel ross joel ross killing it um there's so so many young guys out here you know they're pushing right ahead we always find a way the, this music has a lineage of always finding a way mm -hmm. finding the next finding you know the next way to approach a 251 the next way <laughs> to play over the bars the next way to reharmonize something as much as you can be, you know, be an old head and be like oh my god it, it, it's not the way it used to be of course 
it'll never be the way it used to be. It, it, it's going to be as it is and as it should be. And that's going forward. So shout out to everybody who's, you know, making strides and in the shed and, you know, pushing this music forward and listening to, you know, what's to come so they can keep the music going. I think it's healthy, honestly. Keon Harold, thank you for pushing it forward and keeping it alive with this new record and for taking time to tell me all about the story, man. I th- I'm glad we went all the way down the story. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. Man, you as well. I really appreciate you, man. We got to do more. There he was, my friends, Keon Harold. Beautiful guy. Beautiful talk. I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it with another deep dive. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.